Production support for Earth Eats comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. The idea behind the farm was to really connect people more with their food and promote wellness. So it's easy to tell somebody they need to eat healthier. I mean, we're kind of finding out that just saying you need to eat healthier doesn't really have that impact. This week on the show, connecting gardening, fresh produce, and community health. As COVID-19 drives a renewed interest in homegrown food, we give a second listen to my conversation with Christina Davies on the community farm at Anderson Hospital northeast of Indianapolis. Harvest Public Media has a story on how the pandemic has affected rural grocery stores, and we have a story about commercial fishing in Oregon from Josephine McRobbie and Joe O'Connell. That's all coming up on Earth Eats. Thanks for joining us. Since the start of the pandemic, grocery store aisles have been crowded and shelves emptied of basic food items. To avoid the mayhem, some shoppers are turning to smaller markets in more rural areas. As Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports, that's giving rural grocery stores a boost. Winchester, Illinois is a town of fewer than 2,000 people. Great Scott Community Market opened in an old shoe store there less than a year ago. Before then, the nearest grocery store was about 20 miles away. Where the previous owners sold shoes, we've got our dried goods and canned goods and all the grocery staples that you find in any grocery store. Market President John Paul Coonrod says they also sell your standard craft beer, wine, and frozen foods and have a deli section in back. Since the pandemic started, he says business has been booming with sales through the roof for the first 10 days. After that, we've settled into a pretty good stasis of, of sales that are about double, I would say, what they were pre-COVID. Coonrod says he usually recognizes most of his customers. Lately, though, he says it's been a lot of unfamiliar faces, and there could be any number of reasons for that. For one, due to lockdown orders, people who live in rural areas like Winchester aren't traveling as much into urban areas for work and are likely choosing to shop closer to home. Robin Lyons would usually shop at the Kroger 20 miles away, but now frequents Gray Scott. This is the time because these are our neighbors and our fellow townspeople, and so we got to shop local. The appeal of smaller grocery stores might also be driving city dwellers into more rural areas, says Shannon McCord, who owns Ideal Market in Superior, Nebraska. Of course, Walmarts are always packed with people. He says that makes it hard for customers to socially distance. So I think they decide to stay local, which 
what it ended up doing is causing my store to be packed with the people. He says he's seen a 20 to 30 percent increase in sales since the start of the pandemic. Business is so busy, in fact, that he's completely burnt out. It's been tremendously difficult. I've been putting in super long hours. McCord says he's been working 70 or 80 hours a week, mostly on inventory. I've been doing that for 10 weeks straight. Supply chain disruptions have made it hard to keep items like meat, flour, and toilet paper in stock. But in many cases, smaller grocery stores have found workarounds by turning to their local communities. After meatpacking plant closures, for example, McCord started working to pair area hog farmers with local butchers in hopes of keeping his meat case stocked. And at Great Scott Community Market in Illinois, it was flour that was in short supply. We're a small grocery store and we're absolutely at the bottom of the supply chain. You know, we'll be the last ones to get something if it's scarce. So Coonrod decided to buy and repackage flour from local restaurants so he could sell it off his own shelves. Ryle Carver with Kansas State University's Rural Grocery Initiative says this is a good example of how these stores can adapt in difficult situations. According to Carver, more than 20 percent of rural grocery stores in Kansas closed between 2008 and 2018. When one closes, she says it can hit a community hard. And often um, the folks that are hit the hardest are the are the older adults in the community and the lower income individuals in the community who may not have the means or the capacity to get to a further away grocery store. As stay-at-home orders begin to loosen, rural grocery store owners hope their new customers will continue to shop local. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media is a reporter collective covering food and farming in the heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. There's been a lot of attention on healthcare and hospitals recently as we grapple with COVID-19. The disease has resulted in nearly 100,000 deaths in the U.S. in less than four months. But as we learn about the ways in which pre-existing conditions can affect the severity of the response to the virus, preventative health and wellness are also in the spotlight. Have you ever heard of a produce prescription? The idea is simple. If a patient needs better nutrition to improve their health, then the medicine might be a basket of fresh vegetables rather than a bottle of pills. That's the inspiration behind the farm at Community Hospital in Anderson, Indiana, northeast of Indianapolis. A portion of the food goes into our dietary department. Some of it, we call it our pharmacy program, goes to the pharmacy, which is like, if you're familiar with the CSA box, Community Supported Agriculture, where traditionally people will pay up front in the season and get an assorted box of goodies. This is that without the payment. So we have, they're called care navigators, employees who help outpatients get to all of their appointments, keep them on schedule because it can be a little overwhelming. So the care navigators are working with people through their kind of process of care and they can really identify who has a need for produce and get that produce to them. So some of our produce goes into that pharmacy program. Did you catch that? That's pharmacy with an F. The medicine is the farm fresh produce. I visited the farm in late summer of 2019 and spoke with the farm manager. 
Christine. My name is Christine Davies. I'm the Farm Project Coordinator at Community Farm at Community Hospital Anderson. I also met the marketing manager for the hospital, Michelle Hockwalt. I'd never been to Anderson, and I didn't know much about the community where the hospital and the farm are located. Anderson has just had some struggles in the past about 20 years and has just really, really been focused the last several years on rebounding. But there are food access issues. It's a lot of the communities around here are food deserts and access to fresh, healthy, nutritious food is a problem. And we do have a lot of older, it's an older community as well. And so when we're able through hospital channels to get food to to these folks, we can really make a difference in their nutrition, particularly for those diabetics and folks with heart conditions and just improving that access for them. Um, transportation's a problem, you know, as well. Madison County doesn't really have a lot of public transportation and we're really happy to help get it to them. The idea behind the farm was to really connect people more with their food and promote wellness. So it's easy to tell somebody they need to eat healthier. I mean, we're kind of finding out it's 2019 that just saying you need to eat healthier doesn't really have that impact. So with our programs, we get kids out here through a couple different organizations to interact with the farm. They have their own garden section to kind of get them interested in food. We also send the produce into to go to outpatients and to local hunger relief programs. And we try to provide education about how to prepare the food, what to do with it to get people more excited about eating healthier foods and trying new things. We give out recipes to accompany the food, seed packets, information about saving seeds, information about planting seeds. We, in conjunction with the local library, did a seed swap in the spring. So we just kind of have various programs to promote not only eating the food, but also how to grow it both as a point of access and also like it's a low impact physical activity. It's really healthy to garden as well as eat the food that you're gardening too. Is part of the mission of it getting people interested in growing their own food or learning to garden or taking up gardening as a hobby? Absolutely, yeah. We try to provide information about how to do that. We also have an employee garden here that's separate from the farm. So that's around 30 raised beds. It's mostly managed by a committee of employee volunteers. It's a sharing garden concept. So we'll plant everything out there in the spring. The beds are marked, what's ready to pick and what's not ready to pick. And uh, folks who work here will go out on their lunch break, get produce or before they go home. That's like self-serve garden, which is really great. People are getting into it and I don't know, it feels awesome to drive up to the building and see a bunch of people picking stuff from the garden. And the first year I was here, we weighed everything we grew and it was almost 2,000 pounds of produce that we got out of that those like 30 raised beds. So it's awesome. Christine took me on a tour of the farm in its late summer peak. The farm is a two acre mixed vegetable farm. We have, I think it's about 20 hundred foot beds of winter, different kinds of winter squash, pumpkins, watermelon, and cantaloupes. And then we have a field of solanacea, which is tomatoes, peppers, um, eggplant. Um, So we group everything we plant by the type of plant it is, because then we know what types of disease they might get in that area and what types of um, pests will be there. And then we can rotate our crops. So we don't want to plant tomatoes in the same place every year because of pests. So we plant by family group. Our sunflowers are all pollenless sunflowers. We cut them to go into patient rooms. We have our sunflowers timed to 
hopefully produce regularly throughout the season, late June through the frost to have sunflowers every week. So we've got those three times a week and they're taken around to patients and so they're pollenless so you know there's no allergy problems and so they don't shed pollen when they're in a vase. We have some other, we have uh, zinnias and some status planted that we cut those and if we have extra sunflowers we'll do this with them too. We take those to our neighboring long-term care facility and they make them into bouquets to put around the facility. Kale and collard greens. We have a little bit of Napa cabbage planted for the fall. Some beans and peas. The peas aren't up yet though, we just seeded them last week. And then uh, that far field was all of our root crops. And then this area right here is the kids' garden. So kids from the Madison County Youth Center and Alternative Incorporated's uh, Kid Connection program, they planted all of the plants in there. We started seeds inside and made like little paper pots out of toilet paper rolls and newspaper with them in the spring and transplanted those out here. So in there, they planted a bunch of different kinds of tomatoes, some herbs, peppers, cucumbers, carrots, leeks, squash, their own sunflowers, mini broccoli, like there's all kinds of stuff in there. And then the kids that come out here who have come to interact with the farm through our programming this season, they'll pick stuff from both their garden and then sometimes we'll go through the rest of the farm and harvest stuff and they take it back. One of the groups we worked with also lives in a facility that um, they're preparing food there and they take it back there and they get really excited about the produce. It's super cute, but <laughs> also amazing that they're excited to eat the vegetables that they take back with them. I had these kids come out that were, um, uh, they're usually like 5 to 13 in this group. And um, I remember there were four kids that were like, zucchini, that's gross. Carrots, I don't want to eat that. And then we went through and harvested them. And they were like, oh, I want to pick that one. Oh, can I pull this carrot? You know, like they were so excited about it by the time they left. But when they got here, they were like, I don't want to do that. So that kind of, I don't know, just providing the opportunity for that kind of transformation is amazing. We have honeybees this year, we have two hives. We were able to get those with support from a grant from the Whole Kids Foundation and the bee cause. So we got a youth education grant to incorporate that with our youth programming this year. So we got all these different sized bee suits. We have the two hives. So uh, the kids that we've worked with, we've had them come out and they put on the gear and they've gotten the opportunities to look into the hives and you know go in there and really interact with them. And it's the same thing, you know, like, most of the kids you say we're gonna look at bees and they're like why like I don't want to do that why would we do that bees sting you they're not you know we don't like bees because usually all people hear is it would be you know you're gonna get stung and really that's not quite the case with uh, honeybees and even most native wild bees if you don't bother them they won't bother you so our bees are actually very friendly and um, I have not been stung Christine pulled a dark red tomato from a vine and handed it to me. Would you like a cherry tomato? Sure. <laughs> Not going to say no to that. They're black cherries. They're amazing. Have you had these before? No. It's my favorite. <laughs> That's very sweet. In addition to the rows of delicious food growing within the beautifully fenced two-acre farm, they also have two small structures. 
One is a garden shed for tool storage, and the other is a walk-in cooler, which they purchased last year thanks to a grant from the Madison County Community Foundation. The first thing I noticed inside were some miniature spaghetti squash, which they grow as a less intimidating size for people who haven't tried it before. Is like a lot of food that can be really intimidating. Yeah. Um, so these are really nice because you cut them in half and cook them, and then it's like one serving per half. So you know you put spaghetti sauce or something in there, like you're good to go. Two two meals, no dishes. It's great. Um. <laughs> the walk-in is stacked with plastic crates filled with produce, peppers, squash, eggplant, and on such a hot day, it feels great in there. But it's not as cold as your home fridge. It doesn't need to be since there are no prepared foods stored inside. Spaghetti squash and tomatoes would be damaged by the lower temperatures. So we can set it at 60 and our tomatoes will not get damaged, our squash won't get damaged. It's great. Yeah. And I was actually thinking about this today. My farmhand is out and my volunteers weren't able to come out this morning. So I've been harvesting all day, literally up until you got here from 7 a.m. to like 2 o'clock. Um, and I still have more, a little bit more to do. And I was thinking, you know, like if I was out here by myself and I did not have this walk-in cooler, I would have to stop every two hours, like figure out where this produce is going to go because it yeah. couldn't just sit out here. Yeah. Um, so it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's next level having a walk-in cooler. The Madison County Community Foundation helped us with our walk-in cooler. Um, Ital Polina is a fertilizer. They make organic fertilizers, so they donate a substantial amount of organic fertilizer to our program. When you talk about it, you realize like, oh, we have like, we have so much support, you know? Talking about all that and realizing that makes those really difficult days, you know, that are inevitable. Burnout happens. Some days are like, I'm alone. This is so hard. Being able to realize how much people want this here that it's valued right community gardening is about not just about feeding the community but also making a sense of community um, which is so important to live in a vibrant place people need to know each other and to feel like they're supported and doing things that are difficult because starting new things anything is difficult and it's so important to be able to find that support christine is also one of the founding members of the madison county food network which serves as a food council for the county. They're working to share resources and support across the various community gardening projects and to generally increase community food security in Anderson. Find out more about that and about the community hospital farm in Anderson on our website, eartheats.org. Production support comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown, at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio.
In this next story, we'll get a taste of the Oregon coast from producer Josephine McRobbie and public folklorist Joe O'Connell. It features the voices of commercial fishers and seafood entrepreneurs, recorded in August 2019. O'Connell conducted the original research for the Oregon Folklife Network with support from the National Endowment for the Arts. Hoppy microbrews, Tillamook cheddar, Pinot Noir, these are a few of Oregon's favorite flavors. But there's also something in the water. What we have out here in our ocean is very special. We have these cold water fish. Salmon, tuna, halibut. They have high oil content. They're big fish. They're fatty. And they just taste awesome compared to skinny little tropical fish, (laughs) in my opinion and in many people's opinions. It takes hard work to bring fish and seafood to the plate. Laura Anderson, Amber Novelli, and Terry Hartill are all small-scale seafood entrepreneurs. Laura owns Local Ocean, an upscale restaurant and market on Yakina Bay in Newport. Just across the street, fishing boats dock at Pier 5. Some of these boats are her direct suppliers. We have relationships with over 50 different fishermen to get the catch required to feed on a day like today in the summer and August. We might feed 900 meals today. Amber and her husband fished from two boats, the Midnight and the Aquarius. They bring their catch directly to customers at their small floating seafood market in Florence. And that's one of the biggest things is when people come to the coast, they're looking for fresh fish. They're not looking for something that is frozen, that could be farmed, that could be anything. You're like, you, want, you want what is caught here. In the town of Seaside, there's a giant glowing neon crab. That sign marks Bell Buoy, where Terry oversees one of the coast's few remaining seafood canneries. There was all kinds of canneries back in the 1800s. There was like 20 canneries on the river. Now there's, if you don't home can yourself in your own kitchen, your own product, where else do you get it? You have to come to people like us. Fishing, canning, running a restaurant, these are all pretty distinct business ventures. But these three entrepreneurs all have roots in seafood. Yes, I was born and raised in this area. I've been in the seafood business since 1966 in some capacity. My husband and I are both from Monterey, California. We had a huge squid population down there. The Italians, they all... They have huge fishing um, industries down there. A lot of old school families. I grew up in Westport, Washington. It's a very small fishing community. Probably had a population of less than 1,500 people. Most of them were fishermen or fishing families. And yeah, my dad was a commercial fisherman. Keeping these family and community legacies going involves careful thought and planning. To bring fish to market, local producers navigate a dynamic set of state and federal rules. I mean, I can imagine if we were all out there just uh, catching with absolutely no regulations, no size limits, no um, amounts of what we could catch, then we would be destroying the ocean, you know? But we all have our part in what we do to keep everything sustainable. 
Take, for instance, one local delicacy, sweet, flavorful razor clams. To sell them, Bell Bowie needs the correct license. Razor clams. We're the only ones in the state of Oregon that can process razor clams. The diggers Terry buys from need the correct licenses. You have to have a human consumption license. You, you can't have a sport license. You've got to have all the proper paperwork. And the digging has to take place on the clams calendar. We have about a dozen commercial diggers that dig for us when the season's open. Currently, it's closed because of the spawning of the clams. So October 1st, and it'll reopen all the way over to July 14th again. Species-specific measures like these are standard. They foster a balance between food harvesting and ocean health. Amber wonders if outsiders to the industry understand the extent and the rigor of environmental regulations. I don't know who they think writes these rules. It isn't just some redneck sitting in a hut. It's biologists, it's uh, scientists, it's people that know this stuff that set us up with it, you know, and tell you when you can keep a species in check. Like Amber, Laura is protective of commercial fishing. She's not only a restaurant owner, she's also studied ocean science at the graduate level. And I get really defensive when I hear too much uneducated ramblings about how the oceans are all dead and all the fisheries are overfished and how we should stop all of these activities. And I am one of the more aware people that I know about these issues, and I just don't believe that that's true. The future of local seafood in Oregon depends on balancing environmental and market imperatives, a task made all the more difficult during a global pandemic. But Laura thinks the past offers a powerful model of how to move forward. Look at our Dungeness crab fishery. We've been fishing it the same way for over 100 years. And the crab keep coming back year after year. All of these fishing families out here that we work with have children that they want to see be able to continue into the future feeding people and harvesting, whether they just like the harvesting part or whether they really, you know, realize that this is about food security for a lot of us in a lot of ways and it's a very healthy way to feed the planet. I think about all of that and I have a lot of pride in it and I feel privileged to be born into this and I want to see that continue. That was producer Josephine McRobbie with folklorist Joe O'Connell. In coming episodes, we'll hear more stories and voices from the Oregon seafood industry, including one woman's quest to make a better fishing net, crabgrass stylings from the Fisher Poets Gathering, and why you should never bring a banana on a commercial boat. Make sure you never miss an episode of Earth Eats. Subscribe with Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And consider leaving a review of the show. It helps other listeners find us. Thank you. That's all for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Stay nourished. Stay safe. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. 
Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Christina Davies, Michelle Hockwalt, Joe O'Connell, Laura Anderson, Amber Novelli, and Terry Hartill. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com. Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at BloomingFoods.coop. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net.